Dunham, attorney at law. The week for a range of legal topics impacting businesses and private individuals, so be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. My name is Melissa Tulis, and I'm an attorney in the firm's retail collections section. I will be your moderator today. Today's topic is email communications with consumers, which we're very excited about because with the new debt collection rule, we finally have more guidance on how to communicate with consumers. We'll talk today about the rule on communications with consumers via email, about the handoff letter, about opt-out options, and how best to verify a consumer's email address. Before we begin, I want to note the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, any and all information shared is for general information purposes only. Listeners should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. With that out of our way, let's now turn our attention to this week's topic. With us today is Christina McAlpin-Taylor. Christina is a partner in the firm's retail collection section. Good afternoon, everybody. Melissa, thanks for having me. Like you said earlier, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. It's been a long time coming. We've all been waiting on the new rule, and we finally have it. And I know I'm excited, and I think the consumers and defendants and defendants' counsel are all excited that we'll be better able to communicate by using email. All right, let's get started on these questions. First off, Christina, generally, when is a debt collector or its attorney allowed to send an email to a consumer? So there's a couple of different ways um, that the debt collector and attorney could communicate via email to the consumers. The first and easiest way is to get consent. If you have consent between Smith Debenham, for example, and a consumer, then of course you can email them. Um, If the consumer has used that email address to communicate with Smith Debenham about the debt, not related to marketing purposes, that wouldn't be fair. Um, Or if the consumer has the opportunity to opt out, then you're in a good position to be able to communicate with them via email. If the consumer has provided consent directly to Smith Dubbins to use that email address and that consent has not been revoked. For example, we have a lot of times when consumers might call in and they might say something like, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I really wish I could talk with you more about this later. Can, can I send you an email? Would it be okay if we email? And very often our agents are like, oh yes, of course. What is your email address? Are you okay with us um, referring to your email address and sending you an email rather than giving you a call? I'd say nine out of 10 times, consumers, just like you and I, prefer to communicate by email. So that's something that they're thankful for. So if you have that consent from the consumer, you by all means are able to speak with the consumer, obviously by phone, but then also have the option to also email with them. So their consent is the first and easiest way to be able to communicate with them um, via email. Another way that you can um, email a consumer is if you have the consent between the creditor and the consumer. If the creditor is um, working on the file before it's been placed with the law firm and they have the email address from the consumer, the creditor has obtained that email address from the consumer, the creditor has used that email address to communicate with the consumer regarding the debt, and the consumer did not opt out, then the creditor provided the consumer email address can work. The only thing here is, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is you have to have the handoff letter. The handoff letter needs to be sent from your creditor client to the consumer. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes about what that means. But the two best ways that you can get um, consent to speak with the consumer, or excuse me, to email with the consumer is either when they give that direct consent to the law firm or to the debt collector, or like I said, if the consumer has used their email address with the creditor previously and they have not opted out. And again, we would need that handoff letter, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And have you talked with your clients about this, about this handoff letter and what needs to be in the handoff letter? 
Melissa, I have begun to talk with our clients about the handoff letter, and I'm getting a lot of different responses from our clients. I've had, unfortunately, one client who has simply said, we are not going to provide that handoff letter. And that, of course, is disappointing because often the creditors are the ones who probably have the consent from the consumer, either through their credit application or from previous communications with them. And so it would be really nice if all of my clients would agree that they would send the handoff letter to the consumers. But as of now, I've had at least one client who's like, we're, we're not going to mess with that. I'm sorry, we're not providing a handoff letter. I've had others who have said, oh, yeah, we'd consider using the handoff letter. What do you suggest we include in that handoff letter? What do we need to do about that handoff letter? And they seem more open-minded to it. I haven't had anybody yet say, here's a copy of our handoff letter, and this is what we've prepared and what we plan to use. But I'm still hopeful that we will get some of our clients to agree to use the handoff letter. And again, can you remind our listeners why this handoff letter is so important? Yeah, this handoff letter is really important um, because, like I said before, this is a way that you can get consent from the consumer. If the consumer has told the creditor previously, yes, you can correspond with me via email, and they haven't opted out of it, the creditor then is responsible for sending a handoff letter. And this handoff letter must provide information that they will be transferring this account to Smith Debnam, for example. They need to identify the firm by name. The handoff letter must explain to the consumer that the email address will be used to communicate with the consumer about the debt. And there must be a warning that anyone with access to the email address might see the communication from Smith Debnam. The handoff letter must also contain instructions for a reasonable way and a simple way for the consumer to opt out. The opt out part is obviously very important as well. Um, so you have to include a way on there so that the consumer can opt out. The handoff letter must also contain a date for the consumer to opt out by, which at a minimum must be 35 days. So in an ideal world, um, our creditor clients would have this consent from the consumer to send an email. The consumer hasn't opted out of the email. And then the creditor, for whatever reason, either because they are charging off the account or because the consumer is no longer paying on the account, decides to place a file with Smith Debnam, for example, um, they would then send, before they place the file with our office, they would send the handoff letter to the consumer, giving them the 35 days, saying, hey, we plan to place this account with Smith Debnam Law Firm. They'll be handling this account. We're going to provide that email address to them. You have 35 days to opt out. Here's how you opt out with clear instructions on there and how they can opt out. Once they've done that, we're in a good position where the law firm now will get the file placed with them. The consumer has an opt-out. They've got a copy of that email address, and it's a great way that the consumer and the law firm can communicate. So once we have consent to email with the consumer, what sort of disclosures or notices have to be included in that email? That is really a simple question, but I appreciate you asking that. Um, we need to make sure, of course, you still include your mini Miranda. We're never going to get away with not having that mini Miranda. So you'd want to make sure you have the mini Miranda on your email address. With, I'm guessing most people who do collections work already have a mini Miranda included. I know we do at our firm. Um, and then the second thing you'd have to have on there, it'd have to be very clear that there's an opt-out option. And most of us are very familiar with seeing these opt-out options or unsubscribe buttons. So you'd have to have something clear in your email when you're communicating with the consumer that says, hey, you can opt out. Here's This is how you opt out. That's really important. That makes sense. If a consumer gave a prior debt collector her email address, can the current debt collector use it? The current debt collector can use it. They can. They can do that, but there's still some things they need to do, too. Any prior debt collector who has obtained an email address from either of the above, either because they have the consent from the consumer or a creditor has used it previously, and then immediately, this is important, the immediately preceding debt collector used that email address to communicate with the consumers about the debt, and again, the consumer has an opt-out, 
they may use um, that email address to communicate with the consumer. So let's say the email address was not provided to a prior creditor or prior debt collector. How can a debt collector verify that they're actually communicating with the consumer? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, sometimes it's easy, easier because you might have an email address, for example, that's Christina Taylor at Smith Debenham Law Firm, and you know my name's Christina Taylor, and you know I work at Smith Debenham Law Firm, and we'll talk in a minute about emailing people at their place of business, but at least there you'd feel pretty comfortable that that's the right email address. Um, but I do think that you should, if you're going to be communicating with consumers, have some type of standard operating procedure or some type of policy that your staff uses to confirm that you are, in fact, verifying these email addresses. And to me, the best way, unfortunately, to do that is to probably have at least a phone call with them where they're verifying the name. And two other good pieces of information would be the last digits of the social security number, the date of birth, or an address. If you get an email from, you know, Bobby T at yahoo.com, that could really be anybody's email address. I'd be nervous to reply to that email address with any information about a debt. And so typically what we do is if we were to get an email address from Berto T at yahoo.com or something, we would write them back and say, this email address is unknown. We're not comfortable sharing personal information at this time. Please contact us. And we provide our 1-800 number or our direct dial in hopes that they will write, call us back and say, hey, I did send you that email. My name is Christina Taylor. My date of birth is such and such. And these are the last words of my social security number. And that's another opportunity for yourself or your staff to say, so are you okay with us communicating with you via email? Yes, of course. What is your email address? My email address is bertot at yahoo.com or whatever it is. And that way you can put those notes in your file so you have it later to indicate that you did have good consent and that you did something to verify that the person you're communicating with is, in fact, the person you think it is, the consumer on your case. That makes sense. And like you said, I've seen a lot of a lot of crazy email addresses out there. I, If I recall correctly, my first email was swimmergirl and a bunch of numbers at yahoo.com. So certainly not an email address where you would have known you were communicating with uh, Melissa Tulis. Yeah, I think mine was um, crispymick81 at AOL.com, and I loved that email address for a long time. I had a cousin who called me Crispy instead of Chrissy or Christina, and so I use that often. But again, you would have a hard time verifying that that was my email address unless you spoke with me and verified some uh, some information like my date of birth or my last word of my social security. Exactly. So if a consumer decides that they no longer want to receive any email communication, can they opt out and how can they do that? Of course, that is the big part of this rule that we need to give the consumers the opportunity to opt out if they don't want to communicate any longer via email. Um, the takeaway from that is that consumers should control the communication channels. We want to make sure that they're comfortable in the way that they're communicating. I personally think, and I wonder what you would think, Melissa, but I know for myself, I'd much rather communicate by email, whether it's to a friend about dinner or it's about new furniture I'm ordering for my back porch or even you know, to send in my grocery, everything we do is mostly online now, and I much rather um, send an email. So I'm hopeful that consumers will too, but we do need to give them the option to opt out. So typically what people would use is some type of hyperlink or reply email that says something like, stop, I no longer want to communicate. Um, the rule doesn't mandate a font size yet. Rather, it says it needs to be noticeable and legible. 
Um, the difficulty with these reply emails is that you would have to have somebody, a manual person reviewing these emails to interpret any attempt of the consumer to opt out and make sure that it's reasonable and that the consumer's wishes are in fact granted and that you are opting, they are able to opt out and get their email address deleted from your system and make sure that there's no more communication um, sent to that email address. You can't require the consumer to pay any type of fee. You can't ask for more information. Merely let them opt out. You have to give them that simple way for them to opt out. Once the consumer has opted out of the email address, then you can no longer communicate with them via email. So you need to be careful of that. And again, I would suggest you have documented procedures explaining what your process will be. Will it be a button that they press and you have some automated system that deletes it? Is somebody manually going back in and checking that? What type of audit things are you doing to make sure that you, in fact, are complying with this and honoring their wishes to no longer communicate via email? I think I covered most of that. Is there something I missed in there, Melissa? I don't think so. I think we covered it. Yeah, I think the most important part would be to make sure that it's clear and legible. I mean, you don't want something like teeny tiny on the bottom of your email that nobody can read. That That's not helpful to anybody. You know, make sure that it's obvious and you can see it clearly. And again, I think you'll have to have some type of human interaction with this, whether it's checking that the right coding has been put in place to delete the emails or people reading this to see that, hey, you know, Joe Smith has elected not to allow us to communicate via email anymore. Let's make sure we take that information out of the system. I know there are some time and frequency limitations about when we can contact a consumer uh, via telephone. Are there any time or frequency limitations for emailing a consumer? You know, the rule didn't really place um, clear guidance on that or limit the amount of emails that communication directly related to email communication. Of course, we still need to make sure that debt buyers or excuse me, debt collectors are not harassing or abusing this person by constantly emailing them every hour or every couple hours or whatever it may be, use your common sense. I think often less is more. Um, and again, I say this over and over, make sure you have that documented on what your process is. I don't think you want to give your staff the opportunity to just email as they feel. There should be some type of practice in place that's, hey, let's email one time. If we don't hear back, maybe we follow up with a phone call or something of that nature. Um, and good practice is always to ask the consumer, when is a convenient time for us to correspond with you via email? The good part about email, it's different than a phone call. It's not going to interrupt somebody when they're sleeping. If they had, you know, a job that they worked at night and slept during the day, they can check their email at their leisure. So really, that's the good part about email addresses. Um, but we need to remember anything you're sending via email obviously is written down, so there'll be good recordings of that. So you need to make sure, again, you have good policies in place that your staff and yourself are following related to how often and when you're going to be communicating via email. Now, we've already touched on some of these, but what would you say are some pros and cons of using email as a way to communicate with consumers? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pros to being able to communicate with consumers via email. Um, for example, I just said it a few minutes ago, all this communication will now be in writing. That is so nice. When you get a consumer in a case that's like, oh, when I talked to you on the phone, you were so mean and disrespectful and you used inappropriate words. That takes away from that. We can quickly look back at our email chain and see what was said via email and what wasn't said via email. So we have a paper trail of what's been communicated. So that, I think, is a plus. I think that's really favorable. Um, I think, personally, like I said before, I've said this several times, I would assume and I, I think that there is even some statistics out there from studies that have been done that most consumers are more comfortable communicating via email rather than on the phone. Not many people want to speak on the phone anyways even if it's something positive, but in particular related to the collection of a debt, most people probably would rather communicate via email. So I think we should see 
better communication and more communication now that we're able to communicate more freely with email that we have rules that we can easily follow. Um, and what we talked about a few minutes ago is that email is more accessible to these consumers when they have different working hours or they're not available to speak during phone. You know, at a lunch break, you can sit quickly and read an email or type out an email, and that's helpful. Or if you're, you know, going to bed for the night and right before you go to sleep, you maybe want to check your email. It just gives a lot more access to people to be able to check their email and to be able to do that at a convenient time. It's at their leisure. You know, it's not like a phone ringing that's going to wake you up or bother you. You can pick when you want to sign on to your email account. So I think those are all really positive positive things related to um, communicating via email. Some of the more difficult things might be what we spoke about before. It's going to be a little bit more difficult to verify who you're speaking with. Um, you know, you can speak, you're probably going to have to have a phone call at some point where it says, hey, what is your email address? Verify you are who you say you are using the same verifications that we did before, your first and last name, the last word is your social security number. But hopefully the amount of phone calls will be less after you have confirmed that information. There is, I guess, a little bit of a risk that if a husband or an ex-husband happened to know somebody's password to their email account, that maybe they could hack into that account in some way. Um, so that would be you know, something that might be a little bit of a concern. The other con to it would probably be the negotiation process might be a little bit slower. When you get somebody on the phone, you're usually able to wrap it up at the end of the phone call saying, okay, so you're agreeable. We're going to settle this account for $1,200 due on or before September 5th. This might have a little bit more back and forth. Oh, I don't know. Let me get back to you and might not feel as pressing to the consumer to um, settle the account. And the last and probably the biggest con is going to be the accessibility for maybe some of the elder population or people who are just not as IT savvy. They might not feel comfortable corresponding by email. But the good part about that is it's not just email that you can correspond. This is just allowing you to have another option, another way to communicate. You can, of course, still speak with um, people by phone if they rather speak by phone and know that you have the option to follow up via email if you wanted to. So overall, I think that communicating by email is going to be really great, and I think it's going to lead to additional and more communication with consumers in the long run. Absolutely. sounds like email will present some new challenges that we haven't dealt with before, but generally there are more pros to having more ways to communicate with consumers. And as you said, at the end of the day, should actually benefit the consumers to have more ways to access uh, our office and access information about their accounts if they want to speak with us. So I'd like to thank you, Christina, for participating today. I'd like to thank the audience for tuning in and listening. Also invite our listeners who may have questions to email or contact uh, our speaker. And Christina, if you would like to give your uh, contact information for our listeners today. Sure. Um, you guys are welcome to get on our website, which is smithdebnamlaw.com, or you can Google my name, Christina Taylor Smith Debnam, because it's a long email. It's C. McAlpin, which is my maiden name, at smithdebnamlaw.com. And that's C-M-C-A-L-P is in Peter, I-N, at smithdebnamlaw.com. But again, the easiest way might just be to get on our website and you can look up my name, Christina Taylor, and it gives you my contact information. Love to hear from any of you via email. I'm consenting to allowing you to email me um, and or, of course, giving me a phone call. 
I'd like to invite our listeners to check out our other episodes on Predator's Corner Eagle Talk. And lastly, to remind you one more time to subscribe uh, and stay well. Thank you, Melissa. Everyone have a good day.